Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Uh, good morning, everyone, and happy last day of Hanukkah, Zot Hanukkah. Um, we are up to Morin Nevuchim, Section 1, Chapter 25. We are broadcasting from the webyeshiva.org um, group on Facebook, on Facebook Live, and we are broadcasting from Thornhill, Ontario at the Bayat. Um, and um, we are using the uh, Professor Shlomo Pine's translation of Moren Nevuchim, and we are now going to begin Chapter 25. The verb that we're focusing on today, it's a short chapter, so it may take us a little bit less time today than normal. The, um, the verb that we're dealing with today are the letters Shin, Chaf, Nun, Shochen, Shachan, Shechina. All of these terms um, come from the common Shoresh, Shin, Chaf, Nun. Um, this is a very unusual verb. And the way that it should be clued to you that it's unusual is because the Rambam has chosen to group it with action verbs, even though it implies more passivity than action. Think about it for a second. Previously, the Rambam had grouped a whole group of um, passive verbs like omed and yoshev and ram, uh, describing God in very lofty terms. Um, and here he has grouped the verb shachen, which is to dwell, which would really sound more like it should be grouped with yoshev, where God resides. <coughs> but he's grouped it with verbs like ba, halicha, shiva, God returning, God coming, God going. Why is shachen grouped with those verbs of action? Um, we're going to be discussing that very shortly today, but let's take a look at the text first. Shachon. It is known that the meaning of this verb is to dwell. Thus, an example of this is when we talk about, in Parshat Lech Lecha, where Avram was living. Where was Avram living at this particular juncture when he finds out that his nephew Lot was kidnapped? V'hu shochein be'elonei mamre. He was dwelling in the plains of Mamre. Um, this is in Genesis chapter 14, verse 13. So that's one example of dwelling. Now, we also have a verb for a person living in a place. As a matter of fact, in last week's, a week ago, Parsha, we talked about Yaakov dwelling in the land of Canaan. What verb did we use at the beginning of the Parsha? Vayeshev. Vayeshev Yaakov be'eretz Megure aviv be'eretz Canaan. So one of the things that we're going to have to try and figure out today is what, what is the difference between the verb vayishkon and vayeshev? And what difference do they have in meaning? Another example is, uh, is um, uh, parshat vayishlach. 
in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. After the tragic story of Dina, uh, the Torah tells us, uh, that when Israel, referring to Yaakov Avinu, was dwelling in that land, land of the land of Canaan, the tragic event with Reuven sinning with his father's concubine Bilha, which our sages tell us is a reference not to Reuven committing a forbidden sexual act with his stepmother, but rather in some way um, out of a jealousy for his um, mother's Leah's honor, because after Rachel's death, Yaakov moved his regular bed from Rachel's tent to Bilhah's tent instead of Leah's tent, that Reuven did something in some way to manipulate his father's bedding. And this is the way the Torah describes it. That's at least the way that Chazal express it. But here, the Torah finds it necessary to tell us that this is after the story of the tragic story of Dina and right before the tragic story of Reuven committing some other type of act of indiscretion or of promiscuity of some kind. It says, Vayihi bishkon Yisrael ba'aretzahi. It was when Yisrael was dwelling in that land. So let's see what he says first. This is well known and generally accepted that this is the meaning of the verb. Now, dwelling signifies a permanent stay in a place of one's abode. Again, begging the question, what then is the difference between Vayeshev and Vayishkon? Accordingly, when a living being has his abode in a place by which either a general or a particular place may be meant, you're living either in a very specific place like a house or a neighborhood, or a general place like in a city or a land, it is said of him that he dwells in that place, even if, and this, these are the key words, even if he undoubtedly moves within it. Okay? And this is the point that, the, that really the Mephorshim point out. I'm using some of the notes of Rav Shlomo Tolidano, who's a modern uh, commentator to the Morinavuchim, and he points out something very interesting. This is the key point that the Rambam wishes to make, and this is the difference between Vayeshev and Vayishkon. Vayeshev means that a person made his abode there, but it doesn't imply any movement within that abode. Vayishkon implies that while I'm at rest, I'm not completely at rest. I'm still in motion. And in, in other words, my, the place where I am is not essential to my existence or my being. Okay? And that's an important point because we're about to apply this verb to God. When we talk about God's Shekhinah, God creating some manifestation of his presence in this world, we use the term Shekhinah and not the Moshav, for example. We could call God a Moshav, the dwelling of God, right? But we don't call it the Moshav, we call it the Shekhinah. Why do we call it the Shekhinah? Is because... It, God's residence in our world is not essential to, our, to God's existence. In other words, this is not really where he permanently belongs, even though he allows himself to create a sense of permanence on a temporary basis. Okay, because there's still movement. And that's why, what do we call the moving tabernacle? Mishkan, from the same Shoresh as... Shekhinah, 
because it is a permanent structure that is in motion, so that there is no place that is essential to that structure's existence. In contradistinction to a mikdash, a place of sanctity, the reason why the temple is not called a mishkan, but it's called a mikdash, is because the temple is permanently built of, of rock, of stone, and, 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 and is, a, is a permanent place where its place on the Temple Mount is essential to its holiness. Okay? So let's see how we move into this further. By the way, uh, we can also create a contradistinction to where we talk about God dwelling permanently. When we talk about God residing in the heavens, there are two places where reference is made to God residing in the heavens, in Tehillim. That's in sources 13 and 14 on your handout. And it says in Tehillim chapter 2, it says, Yoshev Bashamayim Yishak, that God sits or dwells, but you're using the verb yeshiva because when we talk about God in his transcendent uh, unknowable way we ascribe him to the heavens. And there he actually dwells. That's his normative dwelling place. Or, as it says in Tehillim, chapter 123, the next source, that you, God, dwell in the heavens. Okay? So, let's continue along with the text of the Rambam, and we'll see where he gets to the idea of this referring to God's dwelling. But before we do that, I just wanted to point out that the Meforshim themselves are bothered with this idea of the Torah in Genesis 35 describing Yisrael, Yaakov Avinu, as dwelling in the land of Eretz Yisrael. What is the significance of that? So Rashi and the Radak tell us both the same thing, that Ad Rashi says, this was a temporary dwelling place for, for Yaakov. And he was on, he, remember, why did Yaakov come back to Eretz Yisrael in the first place? What was his whole objective of coming back to Eretz Yisrael? Wanted to see the Mishpacha, wanted to see mom and dad. So Rashi says that this whole story, the story of Dina, the story of Ruvain, all of this transpires before Yaakov actually makes it back to his parents' house. He's on his way. And the reason why these things occur, these tragic mishaps, is because he hasn't arrived at his destination yet. And because he's been waylaid, for whatever reason, whatever legitimate reason that Yaakov Avinu had, but the fact that he wasn't able to make it to his destination yet was the cause of many of these things occurring, these many unfortunate events occurring. And... Um, and, and that's one way of explaining why the Torah says bishkon. The, the word bishkon means that I'm dwelling in the place, but I'm not completely settled. In other words, that's what the Rambam means, where there's still movement involved while I'm in a certain place. <coughs> the um, the Nitziv in Ha'amek Davar tells us also something very interesting. Because the Nitziv sees a direct connection to the verb shochen, to shechina, he interprets the idea of bishkon Yisrael, that Yaakov Avinu was dwelling 
But dwelling, he understands the verb shachain to refer to some kind of divine dwelling. So what does it mean that Yaakov was dwelling divinely? If you take a look at his language, it's quite interesting. Source number six. Bihiyoto mishuka biinyane elokut umisulak mehalichot olam. Yaakov was completely immersed in the spiritual. And he was removed from the mundaneness of physical living. And as a result, Alkain ira mashi ira imruvein. Aval im Yaakov lo And that's why what happened with Ruvain happened, because Yaakov was not really tending to the physical prosaic needs of the family. And when a father is so far removed from the physical prosaic needs of the mishpacha, of just the regular everyday needs, then things can go awry in the family unit. That's why things went awry with Dina. That's why things went awry with, um, with Ruvain. That's the way he learns the word Bishkon. And that's why he says the name for Yaakov over here is Yisrael. Yisrael implying the loftier aspect of Yaakov Avinu. He's come back to Eretz Yisrael. He's reached the promised land. He, he immerses himself in spiritual uh, efforts and neglects the family. You see, he doesn't do anything with Dina. Right. He backs away. Right. He backs because it's it's not it's not part of his focus in life at this point, the stage of in his life, and that seems to be the way that the, the Nitziv understands it. But from for the Rambam's perspective, the reason why Bishkon is used over here is again he hasn't, like Rashi says in the Radak say, he hasn't made it to his final destination yet. He's still on the way, but he is. The Radak says the reason why it's called Bishkon Yisrael is that. He's on his way to his father, but because he's got such a huge entourage, he's got such a huge family, and such, he's amassed so much wealth, it takes a long time to pick everyone up and travel. So every time they have to encamp, it's a whole production. And so it's like, almost like the Mishkan moving through the desert to get to its final destination. That's why the Radak says we have the word uh, Bishkon over here as well. Okay, let's continue in the, in the text of the Rambam. This verb is also figuratively applied to things that are not living beings, and in fact to everything that is permanent and is attached to another thing. So you can use bishkon or shochen figuratively, even if it's not talking to the dwelling place of a human being. Of all such things, the term dwelling may be used, even in cases in which the thing to which they are attached is not a place, and they themselves not living beings. So for it says, therefore it says uh, in, in the book of Job, now, this is in the book of Job. It's source number seven in your handout, chapter three. After all of these terrible tragedies happened to Job in his personal life, all of the people who die in his family and all of his personal afflictions, he basically says, Yovad Yomi Volidbo. He says, I hope, I wish the day that I was born is forever forgotten, is forever lost. And he then says, um, he says, uh, he says, I hope that that day is, that my birthday is always a day of darkness. And then he says, tishkon alav anana, in verse number five. He says, I hope the shadow of death uh, rests upon my birthday like a cloud or in a cloud. And essentially what the Rambam is saying, you see from here that the verb tishkon 
is being used figuratively. There's no cloud, literally. But even if we were to say that there's a cloud, literally, the word day is a, is a, is a point in time. It's not a physical object where a cloud is resting. So that's, the, that's, his next, uh, that's his next point. For there is no doubt that a cloud is not a living being, nor a day in any way a body, being a portion of time. It is on account of this latter figurative sense that the verb is applied figuratively to God may he be exalted, I mean to the permanence of his indwelling or his providence in whatever place they may subsist in permanent fashion or toward whatever matter providence may be permanently directed. So let me just explain what this sentence means. Now that we're getting to God, once again, the Rambam in his project removes any anthropomorphisms from God. And therefore, when we talk about God dwelling, it refers to one of two things. When God is shochen in a certain place in the world, it means one of two things. It either means that God creates something that is a creation of Hashem that represents the fact that he wishes to honor a certain place or a certain group of people who are in a place. So God will create a cloud which represents his Shekhinah, but that's not God himself, because God is not spatially confined. It refers to the Shekhinah of God, some manifestation of God that is a created essence. The other use of Shekhinah, when God dwells among a, a people, is used figuratively to demonstrate that he is exercising providence upon that people, which means that people detect that there is immediate cause and effect to their behavior to some divine system of rules and law. Okay, so that's the second meaning of shochen. The Rambam has essentially told us that there are two meanings to shochen, one in reference to a physical creation called shechina, and one to the detection of providence, of hashkacha pratit, of direct providence in, within a group of people where God is said to dwell. Okay? Now, um, thus it is said, and therefore we have, he's going to give us three psukim, two are examples to the created shechina, and one is a reference to, to providence. So in the first example, which is from uh, the story of um, uh, Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah atop Mount Sinai, it says in Exodus chapter 24, verse 16, Vayishkon kavod Hashem al Har Sinai, that the glory of God was shochen on Har Sinai. <coughs> okay? And, uh, and that's an example of God's created, creating something, a cloud, to represent that he wanted people to know that he was honoring them with letting them know that he was displaying something to show that he was close with them. Uh, the next example that he brings, and I will dwell among the children of Israel. This is in Exodus chapter 29, referring to the construction of the Mishkan. But here the Rambam says, this is not a reference to the creation of the glory of God, right? Of just the cloud, but it's a representation of the fact that God's providence will be manifest among the people because there will immediately be a cause and effect to God's law dependent upon whether people obey God or not. Okay, that's what Vishachanti means in this context. And the third pasuk is, uh, and the goodwill of him that dwelt in the bush. 
which is a pasuk in Parshat Vizot HaBaracha, when Moshe Rabbeinu, before his death, is blessing uh, Yosef. Excuse me just one second, I'll be right back. Sorry for this unusual interruption. Okay. That what God, basically Moshe is blessing Yosef that he should have the, the sweetest and the lushest uh, places of, of, uh, of land. And he should have Ritzon, Shochenisene. He should have the desire of he who dwells in the bush. Now, what does that refer to? So Rashi tells us. In source number 11, Kemo Shochein Sene, that God who dwelled in a bush when he first appeared to me, Moshe, who am giving you this blessing, may he dwell in your land. Utehei artso mivorechet miritsono, venachat rucho shel hakodesh borcho hanigle alai tichila basene. That's the way Rashi understands that God first revealed himself to me, says Moshe, in a bush. May that kind of manifestation of God creating something to show that he is with you also be manifest in your land. You know, it's quite interesting why the, the Meforshim debate as to why Moshe references God as dwelling in a bush. You know, why does he, Moshe have to hearken back when he's giving a bracha to Yosef to talk about God who dwelled in a bush? We know that God appeared to Moshe first in a bush, but why is that relevant to the bracha that he's giving to Yosef? So the commentary Nachalat Yaakov in source number 12 says as follows. He says, Why does Moshe refer to God as the dweller of the bush and not he who dwells in heaven? God wanted to, what was God doing when he revealed himself in a bush? A bush is the lowliest of shrubs, of, of foliage. And what Hashem was trying to communicate to Moshe is that I'm appearing to you in a bush to show you that I'm here with you in the lowliest of stations and I'm going to bring you out of this lowly station to a very high place. That was the idea of appearing in this lowly bush. And this was what should happen to you, Yosef, and to your tribe. Now, note that who was it that brought the Jews from the desert into Eretz Yisrael? It was Yehoshua, who was a descendant of Yosef. So when Moshe is blessing the tribe of Yosef, he says, may your descendant, Yehoshua, accomplish that which God originally promised to me in the, in the burning bush, that he would take us out from a very low place and bring us into a great place and bring us into Eretz Yisrael, which will be accomplished by you, Yosef. But on a deeper level, remember that Yosef is, the, is the, what is known as the Merkava for the Shekhinah, is the chariot for the divine presence when the Jews are in the diaspora. Why was Yosef the first uh, of Yaakov's children who went down to Egypt? The commentaries explain that he was the first to go down because he was responsible 
for paving the road and creating a habitation for the rest of his brethren. That is the role of Yosef, to be like the Sneh, to be like the, the, the first one to be in that lowly place and to help bring us out of that place of lowly dwelling and to raise it up. So if that's the function of Yosef, both for Yehoshua, it's appropriate for him to bring the Jews from the desert into Eretz Yisrael, and it's appropriate for Yosef in general to receive the blessing that may God dwell in you down in the lowly bushes where you, Yosef, will tread first as a way of paving the way for your brethren. Mashiach ben Yosef precedes Mashiach ben David, precisely. Okay, let's finish the, let's finish the chapter. So therefore, thus it is said, okay, so we brought our three examples. In every case in which this occurs with reference to God, it is used in the sense of the permanence of his Shekhinah, I mean his created light in a place, or the permanence of providence with regard to a certain matter as we explained. Each passage should be understood according to its context, so therefore, sometimes the word Shochein in context of God is referring to a created essence, that God creates to show that there's a, a physical presence uh, that God creates to show that he is uh, showing closeness to a place or a people that are dwelling in a place, which is like the cloud that resides in the Mishkan. Or sometimes it refers to the more detectable providence that a group of people experience. And finally, because we're sort of out of time, the last thing that I'll mention to you is that what, do you, what is a neighbor in Hebrew? A shachain. Why, why is a neighbor a shachain? I was thinking about this. Where do we get the word shachain? So a shachain is a, you could, why don't you call a neighbor a yoshev? Why do you call him a shachain? Like where does that, where does that, how does it, what does it have to do with shachina? So we know that there's an idea that you should always have a shachain tov, and so therefore you want to live next to someone who in some way lives a spiritual life. Perhaps that's the way the Nitziv would, would understand the word shachain. But I think that if we look at the Rambam's interpretation, that shochein means to dwell, but my, the place where I'm dwelling is not essential to me, and that's the way it's used in reference to God, because I can still be moving around, not permanent for now, but not, this is not my final destination. The fact that my neighbor lives next door to me, I have to always remind myself, I call him my neighbor, but his existence next to me is not essential to him. In other words, just like God dwelling in the Mishkan, or the Mishkan's presence in a certain place in the desert is not essential to its existence, so too my neighbor living next door to me is not essential to my neighbor. <laughs> he happens to be a shachain, and therefore, we are in proximity to each other, but that's not essential to my existence, and it's not essential to his existence either. It happens to be that we live and coexist with each other. That's different from, let's say, a spouse or a family member or someone who I choose to befriend. There, the, that's by choice that we are together, that we are in, in close space of each other. But a shachain is incidental, it's not, it's not necessarily intentional. And therefore, the word shachain is appropriate to, some, to, to a situation where the dwelling is not essential to the dweller in that particular place. So that's, that, seems, that strikes me as the reason why we call him a shachain. And it may have a moral lesson as well. We don't always get to choose our neighbors. Right? And yet we have to make the best of it by making them into a shachain tov, 
by making them into a good neighbor. And we can do that but in the way that we endear ourselves to them. But it's just uh, something, something to ponder. Any questions or comments? All right. Have a great one. Thank you.